this idea of the behemoth and the Leviathan, some people view these as actual creatures, and they will say that these most conservative commentators, and this started with a man in about 1663, his name is Bo Hart, and he said that they represented, he says the, the behemoth identifies with the hippo, and the Leviathan, as he's described here, deals with the representation of a crocodile. Many conservative commentaries, if you just pick up a commentary on Job, if you've got a study Bible on Job, not Apologetics Press, more about that in a moment, but many conservative commentaries are going to typically lead you down this road. They're going to say hippo, and then they'll say the crocodile. Um, as you comb through these descriptions, though, I don't think those two fit. They're problematic for several reasons. Uh, many of the details don't fit. What God's going to say about these two creatures is that they can't be tamed. Well, go to your local zoo, and that's about the end of that argument, right? The hippo and the crocodile, they can be tamed by humanity and the dimensions of it, especially about the hippo in the beginning. Also, another thing to keep in consideration, what's the main argument in this second speech, Job 40 and verse 8? What is God after? Job, will you nullify or break my what? My judgment. It's pretty interesting that God in the first speech impresses Job. Job puts his hand over his mouth. But when God gets down the second speech, Job repents. Whatever these creatures are, they've got to be saying something about God's justice, the way he runs the world, and bring Job to his knees in repentance. That doesn't happen in the first speech. It happens in the second because what God describes, Job captures, and it changes the way he sees everything. And so I don't know if that description of a hippo or the crocodile really fit this. They don't seem to provide any additional information that would move Job to this point. Okay, the second view, and this is probably more popular among our brethren, is that these individuals are dinosaurs. Um, our brethren at Apologetics Press, and I've got friends that work there, Kyle Budd, Eric Lyons, and others, and outside of Churches of Christ, the Institution for Creation Research, They've done a lot of work in recent years showing how these creatures fit the descriptions of dinosaurs. In fact, in 2021, Dave Miller wrote a book called um, Behemoth and Leviathan on this very thing. It's a short book, about 120 pages or so, arguing for this very same thing. I think this description is more satisfactory than the first, but I'm not so sure that it is ultimately <coughs> what was being described here either, and I think it runs into a few problems, some of the very same ones as the first description outside of the fact that you can't tame these animals, but what is God after in Job 40 and verse 8? Job, will you break my justice and bring me to my knees? Who's right about this, me or you? Uh, this in and of itself doesn't mean that it's false, but it's at least questionable. Second thing, Jews didn't have this interpretation of these animals at all. Um, when you read some of the intertestamental information on behemoth and Leviathan, they don't view it as any super creature. This interpretation of these creatures being dinosaurs has really enjoyed this kind of, uh, I would say, interpretation over the past 100 and 150 years. That doesn't mean it's false. I'm just suggesting <coughs> to you that it's not the most ancient and it's not the way Jews often handle the behemoth and Leviathan. It's important uh, that we appreciate this view comes from the idea of, well, we want to talk about dinosaurs. And sometimes when we get into this discussion, somebody says, well, where are you going to find dinosaurs in the Bible? And so behemoth and Leviathan are a plausible explanation of that. Whether or not these animals are dinosaurs, though, doesn't change the fact that God created land animals on the sixth day. That's all I need to defend the proof that God created dinosaurs and that at one point they lived with humanity. But I'm not so sure that they fit the description of what's being described here. A third view is these creatures are meant to be mysterious and communicate that human suffering is a mystery, but that wouldn't do anything for Job as he was suffering. 
And then here's the last one, and this is the view that I think is right, and I'll say something else about all the views as we end this and transition into the actual exegesis of the text, but the last view, and I think this is the view that probably has the most credence, at least for me, with ancient Greece and background and how Job would have appreciated this, is that these two individuals are mythological creatures, and they are meant to personify chaos and human suffering. And they don't depict actual creatures, but instead they typify suffering, chaos, and God's ability to subdue these creatures, to subdue these creatures, to subdue chaos and suffering for Job. And when Job sees God do this, he says, oh, I've heard of you, and I see you, and I repent in dust and ashes. There's a book called Fourth Ezra. It's not in the Bible, but it was written at a time period in intertestamental times. And in 4th Ezra, chapter 6, verses 49 through 52, chaos and wickedness are described as the behemoth and the Leviathan. And they are said to be consumed and destroyed by those who would be disciples of the Messiah. And so I think some of this idea kind of comes into play with these two creatures. These two creatures are described as chaos and evil that would eventually, God would eventually slay and destroy them. Job was unable to deal with them and control them or even touch them without consequences. In Job 41 and verse 8, God's going to say, if you touch the Leviathan, you won't do it again. God's the only one that can subdue and control these two individuals. Whatever you conclude about these, and I see the museum of your minds turning, like, well, I thought it was this, I thought it was that. I'm not so sure that us nailing down what these two creatures represent is the most important point, so long as we find ourselves where Job ended up in Job 42, where Job says, okay, God, you're really in control of the world. And so at least I've thought a few of these things through, but my interpretation is not without fault. You may think something else, and we can discuss that as we go through it all this, but if you don't talk to me about it today, I'm running out of here. This is my last class. So see you. All right. All right, the last thing I appreciate is Job's response. Whatever God means to teach Job here leads to repentance and dust and ashes. This was not the response after the first speech. Here Job is completely submissive and knows that God can do anything. And that's the wonderful thing to see here and the thing to take away. Let's begin in Job chapter 40. And I'm going to read verse 7 down through verse 14. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Will you nullify my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that's proud and bring them low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all their dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. What is God challenging Job to do in verses 7 through 14? Put himself in the place of God. In what respect? He's not talking about putting yourself in the place of God as far as creation, is he? That's not what's on display here. Put yourself in my place and do what? Like, what part of God's function, God's job, job description, things that only God can do, is God challenging Job to do in Job 48 through 14? And you might notice more than one thing here, but yell some things out. Tell me what you see in 8 through 14 that God is calling on Job to do. Well, 7 through 14. Humble the proud. Humble the proud. That's God's job, right? Yeah, God says, can you look on everybody that's proud and bring them low? That means put everybody in their proper place. Well, that's one thing God can do. That's God's job. And if Job wants to assume that role, God says, I want to see if you can do that. What else? To do what? Save himself. Save himself. Yeah, how does he say that? How does he say save yourself here? 
Yeah, and if you go up, Miss Vivian, to verse 9, do you have an arm like God? What kind of arm does God have? What does that mean? We sing a song about this. Leaning on the what kind of arms? Everlasting. That's from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 27. Moses' song to Israel, his final going away speech, he says, You have been carried on eagles' wings, and the everlasting arms have borne you. Do you have an arm like God? This is to represent God's power and who God is and what God can do and his salvific ability and he's saying, Job, can you save yourself? What's the answer to that? No. Anything else that he challenges Job to do in this speech, in this first part of this? Crush the wicked. To crush the wicked. Where's that? What verse? Well, verse 12. Yeah, look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Can Job do that? can't tread down every wicked person. He might be able to deal with some, but not all. In a nutshell, God is saying, Job, you've got to trust me now. You challenge my justice. You challenge the way that I run the world. But if you were really in charge, if you really knew how things ought to be, you'd be able to fill all these categories. You'd be able to look on the one that's proud and bring him low. you tread down the wicked. If you had an arm like me, you'd be able to save and bring yourself victory and might. And of course, Job can do none of these things. Um, in verses 9 through 14, we also have this description. We talked about this in chapter 38, but it's this description of the divine warrior. Look at chapter 40 and verse 7. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. When God shows up in the whirlwind the first time, he's girding himself for battle up against Job. But I want you to see something. Go to a few passages with me. Go to Psalm 18. And I think this will kind of inform our idea about these creatures as well. But when you go to Psalm 18... This same type of terminology is used, and God normally uses this terminology of him preparing himself for battle, and then he goes into this idea of he's going to defeat the opposition. Psalm 18 and verse 12. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered <coughs> in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. God has arrayed himself for battle here, and then he's going to destroy the adversary. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 11. Psalm 89, 11. The heavens also are yours, the earth also, the world, and all that is in it. You have founded them, and you have filled them. The north and the south you've created, Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty what? Verse 13. Arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness belong to you. Blessed are the people who know the festival. Shout who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness they are exalted. Again, God has this mighty arm. God's going to lead his people to victory. Let's do one more. Go to Psalm 93. Psalm 93, and we'll just read this whole psalm. It's just five verses. What I want you to see is this thread. God didn't do something fairly new in Job, foreign to the Bible. In fact, we'll see this in chapter 41. The word Leviathan occurs several times in the Old Testament, and it normally occurs in these types of settings where God arrays himself for battle. He's described as this warrior who's clothing himself to go out for battle, and it ultimately leads to the triumph and victory of his people. Look at Psalm 93 and verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. 
Yes, the Lord has established it. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God's arraying himself for battle. He's going to war against the foe. And in Job 40, he's saying, Job, can you do that? In Job 40 and verse 9, he says, can you thunder with a voice like his? You remember Elihu in his speech in Job 37 and verse 5, he says, God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things we can't comprehend. The first thing God does in the second speech is challenge Job. Can you set the world right like me? What would be Job's response? What would be your response? No. And God's going to lift two things to the surface to further emphasize that Job's answer and our answer should be no. First is the behemoth. Look at verse 15 down through verse 24. Behold the behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? All right, so this first creature in verse 15 is described as the behemoth. And English translators really don't even try to translate this word. They just bring it over from Hebrew right in. But a behemoth is a plural way of saying an animal. The singular way to say, say this would be behemoth, but behemoth sounds like it's a plurality of animals. Why would you say a behemoth, meaning more than one, when you're really talking about one creature, one animal? It's really big. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's to say he's the beast of beasts. He's the animal of all the animals. And then he goes ahead and he describes what this animal is like. In verses 16 through 18, his amazing strength is described. He is the first work of God's creation, or he is the preeminent one. That is, he is at the forefront of God's mind and thoughts. But notice it says, let him who made him bring his sword near. Whoever this behemoth is, whatever it represents, God eventually is going to slay it. God's going to eventually deal with it. The idea that he's the first work of his, God's creation, if this is a literal interpretation, this couldn't be about an animal, because animals aren't the first thing that God created. Not land animals. It wouldn't be a behemoth. Right, And so he's the first work of God's creation. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Verses, verse 19, God will slay this animal. God takes up armor and weapon to defeat what Job or who Job cannot. This victory over the behemoth will come through God's arm, as he mentioned in verse 9. Rather than expecting Job to take matters into his own hands and slay the wicked and evil that plagues him, God, as his maker, is also his defender. In verse 19, he says... The one who made him should bring his sword and defeat him. Job and his friends either thought that two things had to be true. Either Job had to be guilty of sin or God had to be unjust. And what God shows up and says is, no, Job, you're innocent. You're not guilty of sin, but I'm also not unjust. I'm running the world exactly as I designed it to be run. Now look at Job chapter 41. The next creature that's described is the Leviathan. Can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? 
Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him, and will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. So this second creature is the Leviathan. And this Leviathan, the, the lexicons, the Hebrew lexicons say this word means a sea monster or a serpent or a dragon. This isn't the first time it occurs in the Bible. Look at Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3 and verse 8, Job mentions this creature first, and God brings it up in response to Job's pleas. Now, what's going on in Job chapter 3? Does anybody remember what's going on in Job's mind and heart in chapter 3? He suffers in chapter 1, chapter 2, tells his wife, I'm going to retain my integrity. But when you get to chapter 3, Neil taught this section a long time ago, a few weeks ago. What happens in Job chapter 3? What is Job saying at this point in his life? He's cursing what? Cursing the day of his birth. In the midst of that cursing, they'll look at Job 3 and verse 8. Job is so mad, he says, let those who curse it, let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up the Leviathan. So Job, whatever Leviathan is, if this is a dinosaur, Job's saying, hey, curse the day of my birth and bring out the dinosaurs or the hippo or the alligator. I don't think that's it. I think Job's frustrated and he's upset and he's saying, let them bring on chaos and evil. He's so mad that that's what he says in his response. But look at the other places. Same word occurs. Look at Psalm 74. Psalm 74, and would somebody like to read verse 14 when we get there? Psalm 74, 14. He broke the heads of the Leviathan to pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. All right, and then go to Psalm 104 and verse 26. Psalm 104 and verse 26 says, There go the ships and the Leviathan which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And the last one, go to Isaiah chapter 27. And Isaiah 27 is in a section of the book where God is talking about the various nations who are oppressing his people and the enemies that they're facing and God's ultimate victory that he's going to accomplish for them. And in Isaiah 27 and verse 1, it says, in that day, and whenever in the prophets they mention that day, it's normally messianic. It's saying, hey, in the time when Jesus arrives, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Whoever Israel's enemies are, whatever they are, God says in that day I'll deal with them. So when he raises this creature up for Job, I think in all these contexts the same thing is true. The word Leviathan always appears when it's referring to those in opposition to God's people and God's triumph over these forces of evil. And it seems to be the point of these texts. I know we're far removed from ancient Near Eastern culture. We live in the West and we're just like, why didn't he just say that? Then? That's what he wants to say. But Job and his audience, they would have appreciated this. They, they would have got this. The first six verses of Job 41, go ahead and turn back there. The first six verses in Job 41, God is asking Job to ask himself, if you could approach this creature and tame him, can you do that? God is asking, if you can control the creature, like, can you control this creature like an animal on a leash? Can you poke him with spears? Can you make him your servant? Of course, Job cannot. But everything that God says in these six verses implies that God can do this. 
Remember, the question is about God's arm, about God's justice, and whether he's going to do the right thing, and if Job is better at doing those things than him. The good news for Job is, remember, how does God view Job? As a friend or an enemy? Friend, is he proud of Job or disappointed in Job? When he's saying, Job, can you do all these things? Of course the answer for Job is no, but it does mean this. God's going to slay Leviathan for Job. God's going to bring Job, God's going to bring this enemy to Job and do for him what Job can't do for himself when he says in verse 2, can you pierce his jaw with a hook? Well, Job can't do that, but God can and God will. Job should already know this, though. Go back to Job 26. Job 26 and verse 13. This is Job speaking. Job says, by his wind, talking about God, by his wind the heavens were made fair. His hand, speaking about God, has pierced the fleeing serpent. Job's already said, hey, God, you've got power. You can do things I can't do. God's bringing those things back to Job's mind. He's saying, Job, I'm going to deal with this in a way that you can. If Job places his hand on the Leviathan, Job 41 and verse 8, God says, you won't do this again. Man's place before the Leviathan is without hope. Job 41 verse 9 and verse 10. And only God can claim to have sovereignty over this creature. Look at Job 41 and verse 11. Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. That is, God's in control of all creation, including Leviathan. If this is an earthly creature, God's in control over him. But if this is evil and chaos, God is saying to Job, Job, I know you think the world's out of control, but everything under the whole heavens is mine. Listen, I don't think God's saying in these personifications that he created chaos and evil. But I think in the poetic imagery, what God's saying to Job is this, I'm sovereign over that. Isaiah 45 and verse 7, God says, I created the good and the evil. It doesn't mean God literally made good and evil, but in the Old Testament mind of Israelites, they believe that the sovereignty of God means he is literally in control of everything. Job, will you break my justice? Job 40 and verse 8, God says, I've got everything under control. I realize that there's this evil and this wickedness that's in my creation, but Job, I'm not letting it run loose. And if I put you in charge for a day, you couldn't put it on the leash and tame it and bring it back into control. For that, you need me. But the good news for Job is that's exactly what God wants to do on Job's behalf. All right. All this is consistent of consistent pattern of how Job acts with this creature and describing his power. God describes him from verse 13 down through 34 through several ways. He'll say, look at his physical impenetrability and then his unstoppable attacks. Look at verses 13 through 17. We won't read them for time's sake, but God talks about his physical impenetrability. Look how strong he is. And then from verse 18 down through verse 21, look at his unstoppable ability to attack. And verse 22 down through 24, he's going to say, look at the physical stature of him. And then in verse 25 through 29, Look at his ability to attack. And then he ends in 41, 30 through 34. We're talking about the physical impressiveness of this creature. This enemy of chaos and cosmic evil being described is not mentioned in a way that God is praising it. But God is simply saying and showing how amazingly powerful he is. And that human strength and wisdom and might is no match for him in any way. Jesus does this same thing. You might be thinking, it kind of sounds like God is bragging on this creature. And if it's evil and chaos, why would God do that? Because it makes his victory and his triumph all the more impressive. Jesus does the same thing. Matthew 12, 28 and 29, he calls Satan a strong man. doesn't mean that Jesus is saying Satan's some impressive bodybuilder and he loved to be his father. He's just saying, listen, Satan has great power and it takes somebody stronger than him to subdue him. When God describes evil and wickedness in this way, he's saying, look at how uncontrollable it is. But I can bring it into subjection and I can reign over it. All right, what do we take away from these descriptions? And then we'll go to chapter 42 
with the restoration and maybe have some time for some questions. Um, the first thing, it helps us to see that while Job is suffering and he thought God, God was his enemy, God comes alongside Job and says, I'm not your enemy, Job. If the Leviathan is really viewed as this cosmic sea creature in the mind of ancient Near Eastern pe people, I want you to picture God coming alongside Job and saying, Job, God was against you. Putting his arm around Job and pointing out into the sea and saying, but look at your true enemy. Look at all the wickedness and evil and chaos in the world. That's your true enemy, Job. I was never your enemy. You and I have the same foe. And in the end, guess what? I'm going to slay Leviathan on your behalf. Now, we've got the New Testament. We know God plans to do this in a way far beyond what Job can appreciate. But this description says that God realizes this is real. Secondly, suffering in the world does not come through the retribution principle or because God wants to punish his creation. It's just here. Wickedness has come because of our sin and our violation of God's will. This detailed description shows how aware God is of evil in the world and the extent to which Job has suffered. He knows what evil is capable of, and this is the longest description in the Bible of any person or thing. Think about how the Bible describes people. The Bible will sometimes say David was ruddy and impressive, 1 Samuel 16, 12. Or Rebecca was beautiful to look at. Or Rachel was beautiful to the eyes. No other picture of person is described this way, with this much detail, with this much attention given to it. No person. The New Testament doesn't go around saying, well, Jesus was 5'9", and Matthew was left-handed. It doesn't describe people that way. This is the longest description in the Bible. If it is about evil and suffering, God is saying, I'm deeply acquainted with how much this plagues humanity and how bad you all want to be delivered from this, and I'm the one that's going to do it on your behalf. God will slay the enemy and deliver his people from the horrors of suffering known in this world. Job can't tame these creatures, but God can, and eventually God will. Alright? So, if nothing else is learned, just know these two creatures, whether real or personified, cannot be controlled by man, and they will be controlled and slayed by God who loves Job and all of his people. And so, whatever you make of these individuals, just realize in the end, God's going to deal with them, and God's going to do it to the good and glory of his people. Alright, Job 42. This is where Job is restored and where he is blessed. Notice the drastic response in Job after God does this. And you just compare this with chapter 40 and what he does. But look at 42. If this is just an animal, if this is an actual description of a dinosaur or an alligator or a crocodile, why the drastic change from what Job had previously done to now? Look at the drastic response that Job gives in 42 beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be good. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He repeats God's words. Therefore I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job says a few things. Number one, nothing is too hard for God. Why would Job say this? Didn't he know this already, that God was in control of everything? What's changed for enhanced Job's knowledge to say what he says in verse 2? Nothing's impossible for you. You can do anything. Why would Job say this all of a sudden? God spoke to him. That's right. Yeah, it's a lot. And Job's going to say exactly what you just said. It's one thing to hear about God. But it's something else entirely when God talks back and says, here's how things really work. Here's how the world really runs. God spoke to Job. That made all the difference. That's all Job wanted, after all, was to hear from God. He did, and it changed his outlook. He repeats God's statement from chapter 38, where he says in verse 3, Who is this that darkens counsel and utters words without knowledge? 
Um, Job had darkened counsel. Look at verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? What had Job hidden counsel about? What had Job misunderstood? Remember, Job's argument surrounds two things throughout his speeches with the friend. Number one, Job's argument surrounds his innocence. Was he wrong about that? Was Job wrong about his own innocence? No. His second argument, though, was God was not doing right by him, and God was, in certain instances, acting unjustly. Was Job wrong about that? He was. When did he come to that realization? It was not after the first speech. It was true then. But when did Job realize it and say, oh, I've darkened counsel, and I've talked about stuff I didn't know about? It's after this second speech. Things are brought home to Job, and Job says, okay, you're smarter than me. And we're like, duh, right? He realizes now God's justice is totally intact. He repeats God again in verses 5 and 6. He realizes he was wrong in the things he said about God's justice, and he repents over those actions. Listen, when you get to verse 6, Job did not repent of any sin that brought on his suffering. If you say that, you're in the camp with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He did not repent of anything that would have brought on his suffering. Job was an upright man, good man, turned away from evil. But here is the question. What did he repent of in verse 6? Questioning God about what? Justice. What God's done. God's justice, somebody said. What else would Job need to repent of? Is there anything else that Job would need to repent of in dust and ashes? Accusing God of doing what's happened to him? Yeah, he didn't repent of any sin, but over some of the things that I think he said in the midst of his suffering. Job was frustrated. Job said some things that he now realizes he should have said. Okay, what's God's response? Let's close out the book and then hopefully have time for a little bit of application and maybe some feedback from you all. Verse 7, after the Lord spoke all these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timnite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Isn't that interesting? God speaks to Eliphaz. Evidently, he's the oldest. In chapter 15, he said, Job, those of us that are with us are older than you. We're old enough to be your father. Evidently, Eliphaz was the leader. God speaks to him and says, Hey, um, my anger burns against you. Interesting. You read the speeches of Job. Remember we talked about tone and we can't read that into the text? It's the first time God says he's angry. He never says he's mad with Job. He's not mad with Job. He wants to bring Job into his love and his beauty and say, Job, I've got you. But now he's mad. Why is he mad at the three friends? What did they say? They thought he had sinned. They thought Job had sinned. What else did they say that the friends say that wasn't right? You did not speak what was right concerning me. What did they say about God that God says, hold on, that wasn't right? Now, because this is, remember, Job, they're wrong about Job, that's right. But God says specifically they were wrong about him. What did they say about God that God says, hey, you misrepresented me? God, God prospers the righteous. So it, your righteousness is a token of his approval. I mean, your, your prosperity is a token of his approval of your life. And if you're suffering, it's a token of God's disapproval. Yeah, that's right. We've been talking about this throughout the class, and we call this a principle. What kind of principle is this? The retribution principle, prosperity principle, prosperity gospel that says, hey, you get whatever's coming to you. Job, you're suffering. It's because you must have done something wrong. God says that's not right. What did Job say that was right about God? What does God mean in verse 7 when he says, you didn't speak what was right concerning me as my servant Job has? Question, was everything that Job said about God throughout the speeches right about God? No or no? Good, right? No, right? 
So what does he mean when he said, you didn't speak right concerning me like Job. How did Job speak what was right concerning God? I mean, Job said some bad things about God. In fact, he repented in verse 6 of some of the stuff he had said before. What does God mean here when he says, you didn't say what was right concerning me like Job. Saying, hey, look at Job. Job talked right about me. You talked wrong. Easy to see the friends talking wrong. How did Job talk right? In what way? Okay, so there are a few options. Kevin starts us out with number one. When he initially suffered, his response was, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1, 20 and 21. I would say that's the beginning of this for sure. Job, when he suffered, he blessed God's name. What else did Job say where God could say, Job spoke right about me. What else did Job say that was right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. What else? He was what? He was penitent. I think that's at the heart of what God is saying here. Job repented. Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, where was their repentance? I think God's saying, Job spoke what was right concerning me when God showed up, especially. He's saying, Job said right stuff. Once he, hey, you're too wonderful, I don't know everything. Job was willing to admit that. That is always going to be the person that God honors. The penitent person. Look at Proverbs 28 and verse 13. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. And again, I just want to emphasize, this is not about any sin that Job committed before his suffering to bring it about, but it is about the afterthought, the afterwards. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 is a principle that just runs throughout the Bible. Whoever covers his sins will not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. If you cover it up, God says, I'll expose it. If you expose it, God says, I'll cover it. You didn't speak what was right like Job. When Job knew he was wrong, which is what makes Job the righteous man he is to begin with anyway, Job says, God, you got me. I'm wrong. Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, they don't say that. God says, oh, I'm angry with you. You didn't represent me right. And when God shows up, they don't repent. They don't change anything. All right, let's go through the rest of Job 42. So what does God do about them? In 42, 8 and 9, he says, Now, therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, offer a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. If you have any questions about the time period of the book of Job, it clearly appears it's in the patriarchal age. Job's going to make a sacrifice for his friends. What do the friends need Job to do for them now in order to get in right standing with God? Pray for him. What does James 5.16 say? Confess your faults one to another and do what for each other? And pray for one another. That goes all the way back to the book of Job. Pray for one another and God says, I will accept his prayer and I won't deal with you according to your folly. God makes these three friends go back to the very man that they said couldn't be in right standing with God to put them in right standing with God. You won't be right with me unless Job intercedes for you. Job's one of the great intercessors in all the Bible. He's right up there with Noah, with Job, and with people like Daniel. In fact, Ezekiel puts him there, and he says these three individuals are great intercessors. And that's because Job was able to pray for his friends, and so they do this. Look at verse 9. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, went and did as the Lord told them. And underline this, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What does this tell you about God? He's merciful. He's merciful. What does this tell you about Job? He's humble. He's long-suffering. God, we always say that about God, but isn't that true about Job? Job is long-suffering. I don't know how he put up with all those speeches. Why didn't he say, just get out of my house, leave, don't come back, right? Job, long-suffering. We're going to get there, but what's about to happen next for Job after this? You know the story, right? 
What's about to happen for Job? He gets up all this stuff. The text actually says this, by the way. And then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Underline this. When he prayed for his friends, God wasn't going to give Job his stuff back until Job got everything squared up with his people. Because, see, nobody's on good terms with God who's on bad terms with others, unwillingly, willingly to be on bad terms with others. Sometimes it's not all up to us, but as much as lies within you, be at peace with all people. Job, you've got to pray for these guys first. I want to make sure these trials haven't ruined you. I know you're on good terms with me, but, Job, I don't want you walking around here hating people because of the things they said and hours of suffering and anguish. And, Job, you've got to pray for these people. And when Job did, the text says, God restored him and gave Job back twice as much as he had before. And then came to him who in verse 11? This, I didn't know this before, or maybe I hadn't paid any attention to this. Who comes in verse 11? What are they doing at Thanksgiving dinner with Job? Where were they, right? Brothers and sisters with Job, they come, they eat bread at his house, they show him sympathy, comforting him for all the evil that the Lord brought on him, and they all gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Where were these brothers and sisters when Job was suffering? Appreciate Job's heart, doesn't matter now. Everybody's welcome back at Job's table. Job holds no hard feeling. His suffering hadn't warped his heart in such a way that Job says, well, God, give me back all my stuff. I don't trust anybody now. I'm just going to do my religious thing, my religious way. Sometimes we can be that way. Job didn't let his suffering ruin him. And God blessed him. Verse 12 down through 16 says, The Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, 7 sons, and 3 daughters. He called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk, and in the land there was no women, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, and after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. Job died an old man and full of days. Okay, God blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. You can read chapter 1, 1 through 5, and Job got everything doubled, except his what? Except his children. Okay, there are several ideas here that just, I'm going to throw these out for your consideration about Job's children. Some take this to mean that the children's lives are so valuable, they just couldn't be doubled. It was God's way of saying human life can't be replaced. It can't be doubled. A second view is that potentially the children died. Job had been offering sacrifices for them. If they were righteous, then where were they? In heaven. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So there were 10 in heaven, 10 on earth. Job's children were double, if that's the case. And then the third view would be that perhaps the children were resurrected. And Neil brought this up to me. This idea of this restored in verse 10, that he restored all that Job had. It is a word that means shoot. It means to bring back again, to restore. And there's at least the possibility that maybe Job's children was resurrected. The text doesn't say that. But even if, if they were raised, then all that Job had was restored. But this is what we know. Job was going to see him again, wasn't he? 2 Samuel 12, when David's child dies after the adultery of Bathsheba, he says, 2 Samuel 12, 23, I won't go to him, or he won't come to me, but I'll go to him. And so Job had everything restored. The names and prominence of his daughters and a patriarchal age shows Job was respected. After his hardship, he financially took care of them in verse 15, and he lived 140 years and saw generations of his offspring and died as an old man full of days. God said Job would not curse him. Job didn't. Job retained his integrity not to get his stuff back, but to get his God back. And in the end, he realizes he never even lost that. And so Job maintains his faith. Job is forever remembered for his faith and endurance. And though we don't know everything about this book, hopefully our trust in God is enhanced as we study together. All right. 
what did this book teach you about God? What did you learn about God in the book of Job that you hadn't learned before? Well, that's the second bell. Y'all are going to be able to talk through this a little bit. What did you learn about God that you hadn't learned before? This is so important. I mean, even not just for the people of the church that has the faith, but for those people who say, how could God do such evil? And a lot of people don't believe in God because of the evil in the world. Well, this is the perfect example to teach what Job went through and why God did it. That's right. Well, I hope your faith has been built up. I hope you've learned more about God, more about yourself, and most importantly, if you didn't learn anything else, how we need to interact with the Job's that we encounter in our own lives. And God will bless our light of Him more than our beginning. But thanks for a good quarter of study. Thanks for your participation.